We have always existed, and we are still here. Telling the stories of those slung dead, we won't disappear. We're taking the pen back into our own hands. We live and we breathe and we keep creating, taking a stand. History is queerer than you. And she just 
never graduated high school and she never went to college, but instead focused on becoming the best poet and writing the best poems and creating the best art that she could. And instead of studying, I think she maybe started studying fine arts in, uh, in university, but she never finished and she never completed her studies, but instead just got right befriended and became acquainted with, pardon? Just got right into it. She like started entering the circles and like through that, she started making her own art. And yeah, she just like sort of was very much a learn a little bit, then jump right in and learn from experience kind of person. Which sounds like a wonderful thing to do. Isn't that like the ideal? Yeah. To just be able to jump head right into it. Mm-hmm. So I think she's she's a bit of a hero. Yeah. It is said that she started writing poems pretty young, and her earliest collection is probably written before she turned 18. Like we mentioned earlier, she wrote a lot of poems about women and about breaking gender roles. And most of these, or a lot of these, were written before she turned 18. That's at least when her earliest poems were collected. And it is said that a lot of them, especially for an Israeli woman to write poems about them, contained a lot of non-Jewish names, like Teresa and Cecilia. And... It's just interesting how she sort of seemed to write about things that were outside her ordinary day-to-day work. And she was a well-known feminist um, throughout the community of of poets and is well-known for being one of the prominent Tel Aviv poets. One of her uh, poems about the Hebrew language includes the lines, uh, Hebrew is a sex maniac. Hebrew discriminates for and against, is forgiving, gives privileges, with a big gripe from exile, in plural, men have the right of way. It's a thin line, it's a big secret. In the singular, chances are equal. Who says it's a law to me? So it was a lot about just how gendered language affects how you treat genders and how you conceive of genders. And she discussed a lot of that, which makes her poetry, because often it was written in Hebrew, um, a little hard to translate. Because so much of it was sense. reliant on being Hebrew and on being pretty much directly in relation to the linguistics of the time and of the language. So a lot of it is, uh, like someone we wrote about recently, uh, Tatiana, um, it's translating the poetry isn't easy and in a lot of cases can damage the poems. And like you will never get the full quality unless you understand the language and sort of the history of the language within the poetry. Which makes it really interesting, again, because you can only grasp all of her work through one very specific lens, mm-hmm. which is also frustrating, but sort of makes it even more, I don't know, exciting. Mm-hmm. And she also went through a lot of personal trouble in her life. She, after becoming more famous, she was very often, she was quite a public figure, which always gets interesting, especially when you're a person with a little, not flair for the dramatic, but slightly more dramatic life. And Wallach was uh, twice committed to mental institutions, which probably also, who knows if that was for mental health issues or mental illness, or if it was because sometimes women speak out against things and are stamped as ill-fitting or mentally just not working with 
society. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And then they get removed from society to, like, not only um, because society shames mental illness so much, not only shame them through that, but also shame their ideas as being something that you'd have to be mentally ill to have. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And a lot of and the I, things that she did were, like, very, very transgressive, including, like, talking about female sexuality, but not only talking about it, but talking about it without the barrier of, like, flowery and, like, vague language. She was very explicit and she was very frank, which was not common and still often isn't common. Um, often we use metaphors or just work around it as much as possible instead of just discussing what you want to discuss, which in poetry is mm-hmm. fine, but it's also interesting to see how she didn't do that and how she broke those traditions and how in that way she was able to sort of break new ground. Definitely. And not only did she create a lot of art, but she was also a big supporter of arts. And she, when she was a little older, became a patron even of even younger poets and worked hard to support other artists and come to their things and inspire them with her own poetry. And I think she was just sort of... I think someone, there's a quote, describing her as a living thunderbolt. That's a way to be described. Right? Isn't that so powerful? Mm-hmm. I love that so much. Yeah. And I just think she was, yeah, moving through her life with such a force mm-hmm. that just watching that must have been so incredibly fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yes. And through that, she did create like a lot of very, very strong within the poetry scene in Tel Aviv. And for anyone who is very, very um, well-known for their work, you, you do need to have strong bonds within the community who also does that work at the time, even if it's not always um, good bonds, or, like, not in her case, she has <laughs> close friendships, but, like, sometimes, you know, you, you gain recognition not for a good reputation, but a bad one. Um, but um, one of her biggest controversies was a poem called Teflon, which is about bondage using Teflon, which is a set of small leather boxes with straps containing verses of the Torah worn by Jewish men during weekday morning prayers. So the poem is like overtly sexual and includes violent imagery using an object that is sacred to a lot of people. And the reaction to it was large and not exactly um, positive. From while she had a lot of co- close connections in the community, this caused her to lose a lot of these connections and to have a lot of people within Tel Aviv and the artistic circles there speak out against her, including minister- uh, and also ministers of government. And the public made it very clear that they believed Wallach had gone too far. But she never apologized for this work. Um, in addition, she also to the- lost a really close friend. Yeah who stopped writing for for the the, um, the magazine that the poem was posted in mm-hmm. just because she was that opposed to it. Yeah, and yeah, she definitely did um, focus a lot on people's reactions to her poetry in, in the negative and the positive, not only eliciting reactions for talking about female sexuality, but also for connecting something so religious and so sacred to people to something so sexual and and seen as almost violent to people. 
So it was very much like pushing those boundaries to the point so you can get that reaction. And the reactions she got weren't always positive. And I don't think that was completely against her intent. I'm not saying that she's, you know, doing it to to cause trouble, but she definitely did it so that people would have reactions, even negative ones. She seemed pretty okay with having negative or positive reactions to her work. Mm-hmm. And it may have been not a fondness of creating controversy, but a fondness of stirring old systems up, maybe. Exactly, that's probably a better way to say it. Um, and it was just seen as a, a way for Wallach to break the rules of gender and sexuality using an object that for many was associated with masculinity and devoid of sexuality at all, and making it a tool for sex and femininity. So, Which is really interesting. Yeah, and it's like, just, yeah, I just find it so interesting. Mm-hmm. And you can definitely see, I at least, I don't know too much about the Teflon, but I, I do, I can see both sides, because, you know, I can see wanting to break those traditions and, and wanting to push those boundaries, and I can also see that immediate reaction of, oh, that's not what that's for. (laughs) (laughs) And while also being incredibly open in her poems and in her work, she was also incredibly open in in interviews after she gained her fame, which must also have been interesting. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like you get to know an artist one way through partaking in their art. But if they're as honest in their work and in their interviews as they are in real life, that must be almost a little hard. Yeah, a little overwhelming. I do know that mm-hmm. she um, she found out about her breast cancer while being interviewed. Because she, she ended up oh, wow. getting breast cancer. And I think, I think that's how she died, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, she died of the breast cancer. Um, but yeah, it, during one of her interviews, she found out about her breast cancer and it's wild to be that open but you know art does require some vulnerability but that's a lot of vulnerability there right because that's like yeah that's a lot to open up to everyone about yeah and again it's like it brings us back to like the thing that we talk about all the time of like you know the separation between the art and the artist because she didn't really allow for that separation very much at all Mm -hmm. she she was very deep into the mythos of her own art like her art is almost inextricable from how she was seen as a public caricature and how she was viewed and interpreted by the public. And it's really, and not only is it, you know, you can't remove her reputation from the art, but it doesn't seem that she 100% wants you to in the first place, you know? she They're intricately connected, and I don't think they're supposed to separate. Mm-hmm. And it's all about yeah, that vulnerability. In, in reading her art, you sort of know her. But also, knowing her, you sort of know her art already. Exactly. So it goes both ways. Mm-hmm. And then there's the question of... Because we, we know that she was bisexual, and she talked about it, and she wrote about it, and was very explicit about it. And then there's the question surrounding her gender, because she sometimes describes herself using either non-gendered or masculine terms. Which, again, she discusses a lot of linguistics around whether languages should be automatically gendered. So it could be a part of her art, or it could be about a personal identifier. So it is confusing. Yes. And which, again, the the boundary between her art and her personality makes even more confusing, Mm -hmm. because you don't really know. We were just talking about how there is no separation, but maybe there was a separation, and we just don't know it. Exactly. Or maybe she just put on this act, and we don't know that it existed. 
And so I think she's, while in the first place she seems not simple but straightforward, mm-hmm. I think Yona Wallach gets more complicated the more you start to dive into her. Mm-hmm. Which and I the think more you all, learn about you know, her, the like more you slowly artist. realize, but you're never sure. Which is like all a great artist can ever ask for, right? Honestly, that's so real. Isn't that the artsy dream, though? Yeah. To like, the more you look, the more you... To be... Yeah, and to sort of be diffusible and difficult to fully grasp. Mm-hmm. But easy enough to sort of grasp that so you can draw people in. Exactly. <laughs> so, like her poetry, her life is something that the harder you look, the more you know, and the more complex it begins to become. And that is deeply rooted in the language and traditions of the time period. But yes, that as... is a good way to pull yeah. it together. But as I said, um, she did get breast cancer, and she died of breast cancer in 1985 um yeah and only that was only three years after 41 so she was 41 and i think that was only three years after the teflin poem was published Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it was and it must have been i don't know not interesting but sort of weird to die so quickly after something so controversial happened to sort of not see how it turned out fully Yeah, and I think that's a, as Hamilton says, legacy is planting flowers in a garden you never get to see. Or that is so real. And yeah, her legacy is still a very complex one and is probably still going to be dissected for a number of years. Because it takes a lot of time to see, especially when you're doing groundbreaking work, to see if the ground that you broke should have been, or if not should have been, more was beneficial. Or will be remembered, or will you be remembered for um, the ground that you broke, and for all the controversial things you did, or will the controversy fade over time, and it just be about your work? It's really interesting to see how that works for artists. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna read the the quote from from the article that we that you wrote, Laura. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. From a person named Helen Yeshurun. And despite her wild life, and as her image recedes, she comes across to me as a nun. And then there's a quote from from Wallach. I sit at home, quiet, resting, and writing, and I follow processes of the soul as I myself am the laboratory and the laboratory assistant. Yeah. And it's just such a good quote. It is. It's fantastic. And it, you know, it's everything that we've been saying. It's she's interconnected with her work and there is a slight difference between the per- the persona that she put on for the public and who she really was and her legacy is really complicated and that makes it even more wonderful almost mm-hmm. yes she's definitely one that um, you could study for a long long time without figuring everything out i think i think so too mm-hmm. and if that doesn't make it better i don't know yeah exactly maybe i'm just a big nerd maybe you are you are working in a museum. That is true. Mm-hmm. I do like Mr. Race, and I like museums, and I like history, so like... That sounds like Intriguing. That sounds very, very nerdy. So hopefully, Yona Wallach will not only be remembered as the living thunderbolt that she was, but also as the complex and creative and writing nun, and, and also everything else that she carries with her in her poetry. The experimenter, and also the fire starter. There are a lot of ways to remember her. Alright, so we're moving to the next section of the podcast, which is... 
Rex and Rex. Wrecking the queers. Wrecking the queers. So it is a mixture of Rex, which means we recommend um, queer content that we've been engaging in, and Rex, which means y'all call us out for the mess ups that we do, which is great. Both of them are great. And you can always email any criticisms or anything like that right in to um, queerhistorypatreon at gmail.com. And we will read them out here, and I apologize if we've messed up, or just discuss what you said, and and see how we feel about it. Because we uh, have we gotten, have any wrecks? We have gotten some some wrecks that, um, at least one that we won't read out loud on the show because it was um, inappropriate. Is that the right way to say? Oh, yikers! Yeah, inappropriate. Th- that sounds super controversial. It was controversial. Um. In short, the person was wrong. <laughs> nice. And we were just like, oh, not only are you wrong, but your your wreck could be triggering for folks. So so we're not going to read that one out. So there, there are, there are limits to what we'll read out loud here. And and y'all found one. <laughs> y'all found one super <laughs> quick. Y'all went for it. Um, but <laughs> we'll read most of them out. And even if we don't agree, we'll read them out. Just as long as it, you know... <laughs> potentially trigger folks. Yeah, we try to take care of our listeners here Generally. at Breaking History. Yeah, we'll, we do our best, right? Um, but so right now I have a rec, which means recommendation in this case, and it is a book because of course it's a book. I've just been reading nonstop Who's the lately. biggest nerd? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, like, call me the fuck out. The book is Ghost Wall by Sarah Moss. Um, amazing. It's very short. I read it as an audiobook, and I just went to the park, and yeah, I just read it in one sitting, and it is so, so, so good. The idea of the story is, it's contemporary-ish, and it's about a a young girl named Sylvie and her family, and they're going to a reenactment, or like a historical reenactment, because her father is really obsessed with this one period in history, the Iron Age, I think, um, and he's super, super focused on it, and he's a bus driver, so he doesn't get to engage with it as often as he'd like, but whenever he gets the chance, he just, like, goes intense, and in this case, mm-hmm. he was put in contact with a professor who wanted his um, students to go to a sort of reenactment so they could live as people did during the Iron Age, so the ideas are supposed to capture how they lived during the Iron Age. And it's so interesting. Um, Sylvie, as a character, is just incredibly queer. And you don't, like, she she never explicitly says it, but she, she's attracted to a woman. So, you know, you know, it is what it is, right? But, like, you, she's so young, and you sort of go through her process of understanding her sexuality, which is, you know, a, a common theme for queer books. But I found this one really unique in how it decided to do it. Um... But the book is really interesting to me because basically what happens when they get there is um, Sylvie's father is, again, obsessed with the Iron Age and he's also abusive. And he believes that in a lot of ways they need to revert back to the Iron Age because, you know, it was so much better back then. And I don't know if anyone recognizes that statement, you know, how much better it was so many years ago. But the book does such a good job, and as someone who loves history, I really value this, but the book does such, such, such a good job in in looking at that mindset and being like, the people who have this mindset have no idea what history is. They they don't 
like, and it's really interesting because throughout the book, you keep seeing him make concessions. He's like, okay, yeah, like, obviously, we can't, you know, we, we can't, I don't know, like, not have these berries because, you know, they're here. That's what the land is now. And, or, like, he'll be like, oh, well, you know, of course people of color weren't in this. And the professor will be like, no, people of color were definitely there. What are you talking about? He's like, no, no, no. And, like, how he, while he's so obsessed with this history, he refuses to acknowledge the reality of it. And you sort of look at all these different characters and how they deny reality and how they deny reality to their own benefit or to their own detriment eventually. Um, and it's really interesting to just sort of see, again, as someone who loves history, um, I talk to a lot of people who love history, and you, you definitely see what people focus on, and I think we have to acknowledge, especially in people who, you know, in some ways want to relive history, like reenactors or people who like are obsessed with costumes and stuff, that's not an inherently bad thing. And I, I don't think it I don't think anyone would say it's a bad thing, but you can definitely see when it crosses that line of, oh, you're not acknowledging the reality of what that history was. Like of what really was there. Whether that means you're not acknowledging the reality in a conscious way of being like, I'm a queer person. I know that during this time period they would hate me, but I'm a queer person during the present, so I get to reclaim a lot of the symbols from that time period and enjoy it in the way my queer ancestors were not able to. And there's that conscious way of doing it versus this completely unacknowledged way of being like, well, we're going to reenact the, again, Iron Age just from this book, and we're going to like refuse to let like specifically in the book they're like oh the women shouldn't have menstrual products because they wouldn't have them then and they're like why because they wouldn't have their period like what are you saying he's like yeah they would just get pregnant so the daughter's like so you want me to get pregnant and he's like no wait what what are you what are you saying he's like horrified because like (laughs) he just doesn't even think of that he's like yeah like women were you know and we're going to get into some sexist stuff, like, women were in their place during that time. They would basically only get their period for a little while, and then they get pregnant right away, and then they get pregnant over and over again. I'm like, okay, that's not... Okay. <laughs> let's let's throw away that whole suitcase. We don't need to unpack it. Um, <laughs> but, like, he, he would be like, yeah, so... And then they'd be like, well, then do you want me to get pregnant? He'd be like, no, wait, what? <laughs> what? And he would just be, like, horrified by the actual realities of this life, but he would pretend like he was, like, loving them. And he would really pick and choose different aspects. And every time that, like, people would point out, they would be like, no, that's that's not how it works. He'd be like, oh, well, you know, agree to disagree. And you're like, no, that's a fact. You can't. It's not agree to disagree, and there are things like them bringing up, they're like, oh yeah, like it, it was never proven that like only women did, did these jobs. Actually, a lot of men did these jobs. He was like, well, you know, agree to disagree, and they're like, no? <laughs> what do you mean? Well, you know. You know. Like, agree to disagree about agree facts, to... <laughs> you know. Like, the earth is round, but like, you know, agree to disagree. Agree to disagree, whatever. And it's also about like the quote-unquote subjective nature of truth which in a lot of ways truth isn't subjective it's it's truth and a lot of other ways it is subjective but 
it's just like such such an interesting book I could write like 16 essays on it I swear it's so so well done and I really think anyone who loves history would really love the book or anyone who just like um specifically it's set in England and England's going through what it's going through right now and it's just really really interesting and how you see all the ways we interact with reality and how we deny it or accept it or how denying reality over a certain time no matter what will damage you mm-hmm. and like even if you're doing it to protect yourself it, it will eventually become a damaging thing and it, it's just a really really well done book it, it's moved up really quickly to one of my favorites um i'm really excited to read it personally it's on my list right now so i'm really excited it's so good i I ordered it like right after uh, i finished reading it because it is nowhere i I looked at all the bookstores close by and and i couldn't (laughs) find it anywhere which was very sad but i ordered it online and i'm still waiting for my copy by the way it's a gorgeous cover and yeah i just anyone who's interested in, in history in any form i think this would be a really interesting book to read and i'd also like really suggest it for anyone who is interested in some form of reenactment um because it's not luxury at all it's just you know it takes it to the most extreme level of like what could happen and do you know what it was and here's a here's an unpopular opinion from laura i know y'all aren't used to this. i'm so excited i'm so ready but it's everything that i hoped a secret history would be oh yeah i don't like a secret history by donna tart i think it was very very poorly done I think a lot of the things in it were just honestly badly written. Like, I know that's very controversial because it's, like, it's known as a modern classic. But it's a modern classic in the same way that, like, you know, those books you were forced to read in school and hated were? You're like, okay, there's some literary merit here, but can we never read this again? Yeah. Can we never read this again? And also, I think it's, like, it's really for me, it was much more focused on upholding the systems that already exist instead of deconstructing them. Even though it was like, these systems are bad, it was more like, these systems are bad. Sucks! And this book is much more like, these systems are bad. We need to, not only do we need to dismantle them, but here's how we dismantle them. And like, mm, that is so good. I love when books do that. Exactly. And it's like, we dismantle them by not only being like, that's not how history works because, you know, there is a character who's, like, consistently being like, that's not how history worked. That's not how history worked. But this person's not listening. Like, no matter what, this person isn't listening. They're not comprehending. And at a certain point, you can't just keep saying this thing that's failing. So, like, it's like, no, at a certain point, it doesn't matter if they agree with you or not. They have to be shown to be wrong. Not to them, because they're never going to accept that they're wrong but to everyone else. Mm-hmm. Like, it needs to be, and this sounds bad, but, like, it needs to be a public thing. It needs to be a mm-hmm. public understanding that this person's wrong, because if a person is putting forward this harmful and untrue rhetoric, we can't just be, like, arguing with this person over and over, because they won't accept, ever, that they are wrong. Not because you're unable to form a coherent argument, but because they're unable to accept an argument, and they're not able to enter an argument, or a discussion even, with the knowledge that they might be wrong, which is absolutely necessary to have a debate. Like, I'm not talking about debate team debates, I'm talking about real adult human debates. Not that debate team isn't great, debate team's really cool, 
But like, as a human living in the world, if you're going to enter a debate, 100%, you have to accept and enter the debate being like, I could be wrong. Which is why, which is why it's so harmful to debate queer people about their existence. Because in their head, to fully give you the respect of debating that, they have to be like, I could be wrong. And to come to the idea that you could be wrong about who you are as a human being is so harmful. And to put yourself in that position over and over again for all of these fucking eggs on Twitter, it's it's toxic. It's a horrible thing to ask someone to go through. So yeah. this book sort of acknowledges that, that like no matter what, there are people who will never agree with you. And your job isn't to convince them. Your job is to put reality back in the situation. Remove their ability to deny reality. Like, and it's not in a way where it's like, take them up to space to show them that the Earth is round. Because, you know, that's an obvious sign of someone <laughs> denying reality. But it's, it's more in the way of, it doesn't matter if they ever agree with you. You need to bring reality to the situation so that everyone around them realizes no this is wrong and it doesn't matter if that makes other people uncomfortable honestly because we have such specifically um conservatives have forced upon society such an idea that to debate is to be comfortable you need to be comfortable during a debate which is just untrue debates are supposed to make you uncomfortable because they're supposed to push you out of where you're comfortable they're supposed to push you out of your comfort zone you're supposed to acknowledge the idea that you might be wrong and every time that a conservative person becomes uncomfortable during a debate they're like this is this is why you know this is violence this is horrible this is like we're being attacked this is mob mentality when in reality it's just how adults handle situations that's just a conversation that's just how a debate works that's how it works but as soon as it's like they feel the negative impact of that debate they call foul because you know Mm -hmm. it's not like they set up the rules or anything but either way this is just like a really really beautiful book and just like lovely exploration of a young girl sort of like figuring out that she's queer even though she never like comes to that point of like coming out or anything like that it's very early on in in the process it's very like she's still young and she doesn't know everything but but you as a reader you're like oh okay i see what's happening here and i I love that i'm so excited and i really love you know if y'all haven't noticed i like queer history and i love the idea of queer people reclaiming parts of history for themselves and I really love that about this character because, like, while her dad is obsessed with the parts of reality that benefit him, she she focuses on the fact that, like, okay, I can't ever get this part of history or live through it, and even if I could, I wouldn't want to, but there are these beautiful things from history that I do have access to, and I'm going to engage in that because it makes me happy. And I think that's a really healthy way to engage with history. That's really good. Exactly. So again, I love that. just amazing book. I've talked about it for way too long now. But I totally I'm a big fan. Big totally big fan. It. Love it. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's all. 
Um, before we go, we have a website, www.makingcareerstudy.com. If you want to support us, which we'd really appreciate, and become a, a, become a part of the Patreon family, because we are going to be starting a Discord chat so, so soon, and I'm so excited. Exciting! Because I get to talk to everyone. Because y'all... I've talked to almost everyone individually on our, our Patreon page, and y'all are, are amazing and really funny and really smart. This is just like a group of really smart people that I'm just going to be really excited to be in a chat room with, okay? Um, Shout out to all our listeners and fans for being amazing, sweet, and caring, and just the best. Exactly. So, you know, if you want to become a part of that, we would really love to have you, whether that is becoming a patron, which would give you access to the Discord server, or just, you know, following us on uh, Twitter, uh, Tumblr, Facebook, Instagram. Those are the social medias we are on. We also obviously have a We also podcast. have a shop. We also have a shop. Yeah, we have a shop. You can check that out on our website. And obviously this podcast is existing. It's on our website. It's on Patreon. It's on um, Podbean. It's on Google Play. It's on the Apple one, whatever that one is. I know people on iPhones can iPhones can listen to it. I just know that much. But we we can we can y'all can. I'm, I have turned into an iPhone person and I can listen to it. So so iPhone people definitely can. Exactly. So y'all are gonna you can hear us. But if you want us to add it on any other ones, please do message us. Again, our email is queerhistorypatreon at gmail.com and we'll look at all the emails because, you know, we want to hear what y'all have to say. So, thank you so much for listening today. We love hearing from you guys. Yeah, exactly. And, um, have a great day. And remember, history is queer than you think. We have always existed and we are still here Telling the stories of those slumbed we Disappear. We're taking the pen back into our own hands. We live and we breathe and we keep creating, taking a stand. History is queerer than you think. Yes, we will continue. Yes, we will improve. Making history is just what we do. Every step we're taking is history in the making. We hold our own future, we learn from the past. They've tried to remove our legacy, but we are built to last. So listen to the story. Cause they'll help us grow From Sappho to Frida Kahlo There's always more to know History is queerer than you think Yes, we will continue Yes, we will improve Making history is just what we do Yes, we will keep growing Tomorrow we have been and will always be Absolutely
Every step.